Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this fourth episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill and just to explain in a demi-quaver what this podcast is about, it's essentially an attempt to elucidate listeners about the journals that my great-great-grandfather William Mowbray Scott wrote right back in the 1840s. I should just explain that these journals have never been published or printed in any form before, so this is the first time that anyone outside my family has had the opportunity to discover what is revealed in them. Very briefly, they cover my great-great-granddad's journey to travel from London across Europe to then work as an engineer on a very early steam railway in Italy, near Milan, and then his uh, subsequent journeys across the world journeying over the Atlantic by paddle steamer to Mexico, and then his journey to the centre of Mexico and the city of Zacatecas, where he's employed as an engineer in the mint or coin-making industry. So this podcast basically consists of myself reading from the journals and at times stopping to explain to modern listeners a little more about the context in which they are written, the references that William makes about some of the people and places that he refers to, Uh, that may be unfamiliar to us now, and also to comment on some of the more interesting instances that happen and the attitudes expressed by people, particularly William, uh, at that time. If you want to discover more about the origin of the journals and their history, uh, their links to my family and how they have been preserved and prepared for this podcast, then you can listen to the first introduction episode of the journals where I go into more detail about that aspect of them. So to begin this fourth episode, William has journeyed from London and he's now in Paris, where he's uh, continuing his sightseeing travels around the city, mainly by foot. Um, And at the end of the last episode, he had encountered some of the nightlife near the Palais Royal, uh, near where he's staying at the Hotel de Bristol. And then he takes a walk around some of the gardens and parks nearby too. So this fourth episode begins with him walking out again to see the sights of the city, primarily by walking along the River Seine and crossing the various bridges on the river, basically going from one bank to the other and taking in what he sees and subsequently the rest of his stroll around the centre of the city. So we'll begin with his walk along the Seine, crossing the various bridges. The Pointe de Jena was the first, a fine stone structure built by Napoleon opposite the Church de Mars. The demi-savage General Blücher, he was a uh, Prussian general at at Waterloo, the demi-savage General Blücher wanted to blow it up with gunpowder during the occupation of Paris. Ascending the left bank, I returned across the Pont des Invalides, opposite that structure, 
is a beautiful suspension bridge built by Charles X in 1829. Still ascending the stream, I again passed over the left bank by the Pont de la Concorde, a stone bridge of five arches built in 1790. Back again at the Pont Royal, a similar one of fine arches also, again to the left bank by the Pont des Arts, opposite the Louvre, built by Napoleon, of iron for foot passengers only, to the right bank once more by the Pont des Arcoles, one of the most splendid bridges in Paris. It is of cast iron and three arches thrown over in 1828. Next, over the noted Pont Neuf, a stone bridge of 12 arches and 1,020 English feet in length. It is just below where the river, having divided itself into two streams to form the Ile de Cité, or City Island, again unites itself. A great many small shops stand on each side, formed on the tops of the piers, which are a very large size and project a considerable distance into the river. In the centre of the bridge stands a most superb equestrian statue in bronze, on a lively executed pedestal, adorned by bas-reliefs of the celebrated monarch of France, Henry IV, and underneath some of the arches there are wheels for supplying the city with water, the stream being exceedingly rapid at this point. I now alternately crossed several other bridges to the Ile de Cité, the Isle of St. Louis and the Bourbon, some of wood, some of stone, and two fine suspension bridges formed of wire, one called Pont de Louis-Philippe and the other Pont du 20th of July, 1830. Nice French. And finally, the Pont de Austerlitz, a fine cast-iron structure of nine arches built by Napoleon to commemorate his celebrated battle over the Austrians. It is situated opposite the Jardin des Plantes. Whence I reached the right of the river and passed through, amongst other places, the corn market, a fine circular building extremely well adapted to the purpose. I then looked into, for a short time, the church of St. Etienne, an edifice I much admired. It contained some well-executed paintings. At this point, I reached my hotel very tired, but at the same time highly gratified with my first day's ramble in Paris. So I'll just butt in here, as it seems a good place to interject after William's first day's ramble in Paris. Just say a little bit about the bridges that he talks about. Uh, not too much, um, because uh, uh, having looked this up, there are now 37 bridges across the Seine in Paris, and it would take a, a whole podcast alone just to talk about the history of them all and um, all the technical details about them too. So all I will simply say is that a lot of the bridges that William encounters and walks across, um, although they have the same sort of names now, um, the actual structures that they're now are quite often have been rebuilt since 1840 when he was walking around um, Paris. So um, most of them are not the structures uh, that he's uh, talking about there. I mean, there's I think he mentions the um, wire suspension bridges for people, for example, um, they actually fell down in the latter half of the 19th century and, and uh, weren't replaced. I suppose William's interest in them is probably because he's an engineer and in the 19th century there's this whole thing about bridges seems to be um, a thing that really interests engineers. You know, we know Isambard Kingdom Brunel who built the one over the Menai Straits and all that. They're always 
admired. It seemed to be a kind of 19th century thing of uh, really epitomising the progress of engineering with building a bridge. And I'm sure the same applied in uh, in France as well. And I think actually even to this day it sort of does, doesn't it? When uh, they announce the new bridge, it's always, particularly if it's um, spanning over some great distance that hasn't been done before, it's always a noteworthy thing mentioned in the news. So there's obviously some fundamental desire for human beings to want to get over a bit of water in uh, in in a really impressive way. <laughs> uh, I mean, we even built the Millennium Bridge, didn't we, over the Thames to celebrate that point in history, which uh, wobbled a lot at first, and then they had to uh, cleverly apply some sort of dampening system to stop it, <laughs> stopping it shaking itself apart. Anyway, back to these bridges in Paris. So most of them probably aren't there now that William's talking about, but probably two that definitely are and are still there. I'm just going to mention uh, Pont Neuf, which is the oldest bridge in Paris across the Seine. I think if you've been on a trip to Paris and done sightseeing, you've you've probably almost inevitably walked across this bridge because it's the bridge that gets you to the, the Ile de Cité. Please forgive my pronunciation. Every time I say that, Ile de Cité, it comes out r- different and wrong each time. <laughs> so, the Ile City Island. I'm just going to use the English, the English translation. Um, it goes to the City Island where the Cathedral of Notre Dame is, of course. So um, you probably nearly always walk across it. There are other bridges that connect that island in the middle of the river, but this is the most famous one, and it was built around. Um, 1570 so it's really old and it definitely would have been there when William was walking across it if it wasn't there of course he'd have uh, fallen in the water so that's that's definitely there and he mentions this statue of William the fourth that is still there now it was actually I think originally cast and put there back in the 1600s Henry the fourth Another name for him was Good King Henry. He was the first of the Bourbon kings, which is stretched right up very near as a line of kings in France, stretched almost just prior to William's time in France. But yeah, he was known as Good King Henry. He was a, a good king. He was a judicious, if you like, politician as well. He was actually Catholic, but was brought up a Protestant. But then he became a Catholic again to be king and uh, i think he said something like uh, it was it's it's worth a mass <laughs> it's worth a mass to, to to be king um so um yeah he was obviously quite a sort of astute politician as well as a king and he introduced um laws that protected protestants in ostensibly the catholic country of france so that ended a lot of internal conflict that had happened in france between those religions as it did in lots of countries in Europe including our own of course we were also having struggles with Catholics and Protestants so yeah he's just seen as a almost like a founding father king of France of that that era so probably a good king to have a statue erected in his honour but this bronze statue that's pretty big that's there on this river that William notices the one he's looking at is actually a recast version of it because in the French Revolution, the first French Revolution, the original was uh, smashed up as a lot of stuff that happened in that revolution. But then a few years later, when the Bourbon kings, Louis XVIII, was restored to throne after Napoleon's rule, they decided to recast this bronze and re-erect it again. And um, 
rather interestingly, I suppose, or was it is it fate? I don't know. They uh, they used the bronze from two statues to recast it. One was uh, I can't remember now who who, who the important person was it was but the other one was a statue of napoleon (laughs) that they melted down to recast the one of henry the fourth now the other bridge that would have been there is the pont des arts that was built in 1804 during napoleon's rule again getting back to napoleon and all the things that he did and built around france and the infrastructure so this was built across the river in 1804 and it's the first metal bridge to cross the the Seine so in that regard it was a sort of in engineering first in France and it's it still it uh, exists today it's most well known now as the bridge where you've probably seen it where young lovers attach padlocks to the the sides of it where the metal sort of railings are and of course this has become a tradition now that has got well out of hand and there are hundreds of thousands of locks there now, or there were. Uh, I, I, just looking at apparently in 2015, there were more than a million locks or padlocks locked onto this blooming bridge, and that weighed more than 45 tons. And of course, you can imagine the damage and concern that was causing to the French authorities at the time, because this is obviously is a, an important historic bridge as well as being a one for lovers to express their undying love by putting one of these padlocks on in fact it got so bad they were putting padlocks on padlocks on padlocks on padlocks and anyway and everyone was not very happy about it and um, they've since i think removed them and they've tried to stop people doing it I, I don't know i haven't been to paris recently so i don't know if they still do but they they now try to encourage people to do a selfie on the bridge rather than put an actual padlock on it but Anyway, but that bridge uh, dates back to 1804 and it was built by Napoleon as a footbridge and it definitely would have been one that, as uh, William describes it in his journals at that time, he would have walked over. So that's about it for the bridges. That's gone on a long time. Trouble is, I start waffling away and (laughs) I can't stop myself. I'm my own worst enemy. Anyway, I shall stop now and uh, we'll continue with the rest of... William's Walk Round Paris. A beautiful morning, breakfasted and on the move by seven o'clock, proceeded by the quays on the right bank of the river to the town hall or Hotel de Ville. This is a large and splendid building, commenced as the inscription imports in the year 1553. It is the Gothic style of architecture, very regular, grand and harmonious in its proportions. Over the principal entrance is an equestrian statue of bronze, on a pedestal of black marble of Henry IV. The edifice has been the scene of some of the most remarkable events recorded in the history of France. It suffered much in the Revolution of 1830, and at the time of my visit was undergoing a thorough repair. In front of the Hotel de Ville is the Place de Grieve, where the guillotine formerly stood, that dreadful engine of tyranny and death which was exercised with no sparing hand by those monsters in whose hands were the destinies of France, and in that dreadful reign of terror that distinguished the revolution of 1790 and shook every moral and social institution of France to its centre that horrid period that brought to the scaffold the king and the queen and nearly all the wisest and best heads of the kingdom 
but spared neither age nor sex, and set all that was religious and virtuous at defiance. Here Robespierre, Morat, Danton and co. sent their victims, and here also, in the turn of retributive justice, fell that monster and his associates also. And also here, the last of the elder Bourbons, proffering nothing from experience, made his artillery sweep with canister shot the Place de Grieve, and in the death of hundreds of his subjects, in their rightful struggle for constitutional freedom, gave the fullest proof that the Bourbons, the elder branch at least, had no feelings either for or with the people of France. And strange also, as it may appear, that the only Republican government in Europe, the brave Swiss, as I have heard them termed, that know so well how to look after their own liberty at home, should still be found as the mercenary soldiers of the greatest tyrants of home. Witness, for instance, the Swiss guards of Louis XVI and Charles X that bore so distinguished a part in the struggle I have mentioned, and at the present moment the greater part of the soldiers belonging to the Pope of Rome and the King of Naples are natives of Switzerland. OK, I'm going to stop briefly at this point reading from the journal just to explain this little extract here. This is one of these difficult occasions when William, he doesn't uh, claim to be a great writer, and this is one of those moments when I think that is uh, noticeable, mainly because I think he starts to sort of wax lyrical, but he also does a lot of summarising and praising of history, and everything gets a bit blurred, and some of the things he says are correct, and some of the things he says aren't, and... It's all very hard to get to the exact meaning of what he's talking about. So how he expects his young children to understand what he's referring to, even then, I think is pretty hard, let alone now. So it can be all a bit confusing. But in a way, they are valuable bits from the journal as well, because it's quite often at these times that William often expresses his views and opinions about things which... Uh, in, in a way, is essential about reading these journals rather than the facts and figures that he's referring to. And I'm trying not to just make this whole thing a, into a history lesson. So he starts talking about the uh, the Hotel de Ville and the Place de Grieve and so, so forth. And I'll try and get to the bottom of it because this area he's talking about now is not called the Place de Grieve or Grieve. I should have worked the French pronunciation out of that before I started saying all this. Anyway... It's now called the Place de Hotel Ville, which is the grand building near it. It was called the Place de Grève because it's the French word for gravel or sandbank. And of course, at that time, the same river, there wasn't an embankment as, it, as there are now that's built to hem the water in. So there was a sort of gravel bank there and it was where things were unloaded from, from ships and boats. And that was why it was called the Place de Grève or Grève, Grève. I shall I shall try and get the correct pronunciation. Place de Grève. Anyway, it was the site historically of all the executions and things that's happened in Paris and latterly it was the first place where the guillotine was put up during the French Revolution. So this is one of these occasions where William kind of I think he gets his history a bit muddled. He really throws things by this um reference to the last of the Bourbons talking about the kings and at first you think he's talking about the Bourbon brothers who came back to rule after Napoleon's time so it could have been Louis the 18th and then his brother Charles the 10th and so that throws you because that happens later in events and he talks about these this massacre or this 
this event in which a lot of people were killed in the square. But he begins by talking about the Baldwin brothers, which happened another time. So you're not sure what he's referring to. It could have been several things. It could be the time called the White Terror, when, uh, if you like, the royalists, after Napoleon had been defeated and was exiled, the Congress of Vienna, which was all the nations who'd beaten Napoleon, including us and Austria and so forth, I say us, Britain, they all got together, sort of carved up who got what in Europe, and they also insisted on certain things. And one of the things they insisted in was that the monarchy was restored in France. And this is how Louis XVIII became king again. So he was king, but in France itself, there was a movement called the, the ultra-royalists who were probably like the establishment, really, of people who'd been around before the first French Revolution of 1789. And of course, they wanted a return to the old way of things. But in fact, they were very right-wing. They were kind of more right-wing than the king himself. And they wanted it to be much more like the old regime, the ancient regime, where they had the divine right of kings and everything the king said was instigated. And there was no, if you like, democratic process at all. There was no constitutional assembly to work with. That's what they were fighting for sort of thing, because they wanted things to be back how they used to be before the revolution. And there's this sort of event, the White Terror, when they were causing deaths and problems and things in France. It could be that. It could be a reference to the Three Glorious Days, which is the Revolution of 1830, when uh, um, there was another, the Second Revolution, if you like, which I think I mentioned earlier, when Charles X, who was Louis XVIII's brother, he was much more of a ultra-royalist, if you like, in his standpoint. So when he succeeded Louis XVIII, he did instigate some more hard right policies in running the country much to people's uh, in the lower classes anger and so then we had the 1830 revolution so it could have been that and the three glorious days and there was bloodshed during that it could be referring to a famous incident where napoleon as a young officer was sent out to deal with the paris mob and to put them down he gave them what's now been called a whiff of grape shot it's actually suggested that he'd never actually said that. But what he did do was he got cannons and filled them with little balls, little musket balls and stuff, and fired them at the crowd. And as you can imagine, the carnage that ensued from that sort of thing, it was called and described as a whiff of grape shot. Grape shot being the size of the bullets. It's like firing a massive shotgun into a crowd. And of course, that was a pretty horrible event. But also, although Napoleon claimed to be a revolutionary himself and backed the revolution, he also wanted law and order. And this was his very ruthless way of putting down the crowd and the mob and effectively, some people say, ending the first revolution by doing that. And of course, as a young officer, that then was the beginning of his success and the beginning of his career to be built up into the great leader that he became. So it could be a reference to that, but it's not. Having done a lot of research and dug, dug, dug to find out, I think what William is referring to is before all that. So in 1788, actually before the first French Revolution itself, he's referring to an instance in the Blastergrave where there was a lot of unrest. So this is like going so much like going back to my O level. Causes for the French Revolution were, <laughs> you know, you begin some essay title there. The causes of the French Revolution were A. <laughs> um, big hats. No. <laughs> so, 
1788. Obviously, the French Revolution didn't come out of nothing. People didn't just sit on the sofa one day and think, let's have a revolution. It came out of actual real poverty and real hardship for the French people, mainly through a series of bad economic decisions made by the king and his ministers and things like getting involved with the American Revolution against Britain. Uh, shot themselves in their foot there, didn't they? Hey, because uh, they because uh, they wanted to have a go at us by backing the Americans and their War of Independence. They spent a lot of money bankrupting their own economy. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that was one issue. Also, a kind of laissez-faire attitude to the economy by government ministers. This led to bread price rises. And also just generally how poor people, the peasantry and everything were treated in France. As you can imagine, it was pretty to be a peasant in France. And that's why they had a revolution. You know, they got fed up with it. And so this incident that William is referred to happened at the Place de Grève. And it came out of a lot of anger against the ministers. And so a crowd gathered and they started obviously rioting. A few, there were a few riots and things like that. And in the Place de Grève itself, they lit candles and illuminated the square for a few days through the night. And to do this also, to have sort of fireworks, they started stopping posh toffs who were going around in their carriages, demanding money off them so they could get fireworks and more candles to light the square. And they also forced them out of their carriages, uh, the toffs, and made them salute to that statue that William mentioned before of Henry the Fourth, they made the the toss salute that, and then they were gonna they burnt effigies of the various ministers, and they were gonna burn one of Marie Antoinette as well. Obviously, this all gets a bit out of hand. The troops are sent in, a lot of gunfire, a lot of people killed. So I think that is actually what William is referring to here in the Place de Grève, and all that stuff about brothers whether that is the last of the Bourbon brothers who is Louis XVIII and Charles X that all happened after in 1830 and after Napoleon had gone it all happened then so maybe it's William confusing these the time scale of things of events that happened I don't know but it's a bit unclear the next bit referring to the Swiss guard now take a deep breath <laughs> take a deep breath <clears throat> you may need to put the kettle on while I'm talking about all this as well Swiss Guard still exists today. They are still, if you like, the army in the Vatican City. Um, I think there's only about, I don't know, 300 or 200 of them. They're essentially like the Pope's bodyguards. But their history dates back to, in France, it dates back to the 1400s. And they were like mercenaries. And they were employed by various monarchs around Europe to fight in people's armies. And um, in France... They initially were called the Sans Suisse, who they were like the king's personal bodyguard. So there was a hundred bodyguards. And then a bit later, at the instigation of Louis XIII, he sort of recruited more of them and they became the Guard Suisse, the Swiss guards. And they then were posted around the prominent royal palaces in Paris. And they also fought with the French army. The nearest equivalent I could say today, it's a bit like in the British army and we have the Gurkha regiments from Nepal don't we? we have the Gurkhas and they have their own regiments in the British army and maybe the Swiss guard not quite the same but it's a bit like that so you know they're not 
don't actually come from Britain, but they're in our army. And there's a long history as well of them being in our army. And obviously they're very well respected as soldiers. So the Swiss Guard is a bit like that, I suppose, to make it a modern equivalent. Now, most famously in the First Revolution, they were guarding the Tuileries Paris, which I mentioned before, which was, if you like, the palace actually in Paris, where the kings and queens used to reside when they were actually in Paris and not in Versailles. When they were defending that during the First French Revolution, the mob came in and about 700 of them were killed. It was a very, very bloody event. And they died defending it and only 300 survived. All the officers were killed by the mob. It was a very, very unpleasant event. Interestingly, just to refer back to the things I said previously, it suggested Napoleon witnessed this massacre, really, of the mob. And that was one of the reasons why... Later on, when he was asked to put down the mob, he did the whiff of grape shot thing because he couldn't understand why the officers in charge of the Swiss Guard hadn't been more ruthless, if you like, in putting down the revolutionary mob. So that's why, after seeing that event, he wasn't going to let it happen again on his watch, as they say. It's, it's also mentioned later on, when we had the Revolution 1830 and the Swiss Guard again were at the Tuileries, that this time, when the mob came around, they sort of quietly put their guns down and... Um, merged into the crowd as it were so they weren't massacred again which you can't blame them for but the remnants apparently of that second swiss guard were the the foundings if you like of what we now know as the the french foreign legion as well i think it was retired soldiers from that 1830 swiss guard became the first members of a foreign force which then evolved into the french foreign legion so that is the end of explaining all that bit it's taken a long time. I don't want this podcast just to be a series of me yelping on about history, but sometimes I think it's nice to point you in the right direction. But also this just demonstrates William's sort of, at times, he gets a bit carried away, I think, <laughs> with his descriptions of things. And, uh, you know, these events weren't that long ago in his own memory, I suppose. I mean, they, were, they happened in his lifetime. He was born in 1800. So, I don't know, it's a bit like me... Being aware of the Vietnam War and it going on, it you know it happened at the beginning of my lifetime, and uh, maybe you know how, how there's a character in um, Apocalypse now, isn't there? Played by Dennis Hopper, the archetypal veteran talking about the Vietnam War. You know, again, it was it was Vietnam, man. There was a lot going down. Maybe it's kind of William's sort of more florid way of kind of doing that. It was the French Revolution, man. There was a lot of going down. <laughs> anyway, back to the journal. it is time we leave this subject and the scene of so many horrid tragedies leaving the place de grieve and passing over the first bridge we arrive and behold the front of notre dame the cathedral church of paris which is situated at the eastern extremity of the Arles de cite its origin is unknown tradition says that the original site was a temple in the time of tiberius and it was consecrated to jupiter castor and pollux Authentic records establish that it was named after St. Denis till 522, 
when Childerberg I devoted it to the Virgin Mary. Great alterations were made in the building by Robert the Pious in 1010, and in the year 1163, Maurice de Sully, Archbishop of Paris, commenced the reconstruction of the cathedral, Pope Alexander III laying the first stone. It was carried on by Eudes de Sully, the successor of Maurice till his death in 1220, and Peter de Nemours finished it in about 1229. Henry Legate of the Papal See constructed in 1182 the great altar. The chapels are 45 in number and are of the 14th century. The edifice is 414 feet long and 102 in height and 144 wide. The architecture is Gothic and the boldness and singularity of the nearly 300 immense columns with the above number of chapels inspires the spectator with awe and admiration. Think only of the idea of a double colonnade of 130 enormous columns each. The western front has an imposing appearance. There are three portals of unequal elevations. Above them, in niches, are 28 statues of the kings of France, from Childebert to Philippe Augustus. Over these, again, is a beautiful marigold window set in a deep round arch with the zigzag ornament. The northeast portal is remarkable for the eleven signs of the zodiac sculptured on the arch. That of the Virgin is of considerably larger proportions and is placed on the pith. That's the point where the two, if you've got two doorbells coming together, it's basically the bit in the middle where they meet. Placed on the pith, separating the two doors. The portals of the two extremities are surmounted by two large square towers, 40 feet square, and are 204 feet high from the summit, of which there is an extensive view of Paris. The ascent of the 380 steps is easy, and it has been frequently chosen, like the column in the Place de Vendôme and the Triumphal Arch, as a place of suicide, the French not thinking it worthwhile to shut up their public monuments because some crazy people choose to hurl themselves from their summits. The exterior of Notre Dame has been much improved of late by the removal of buildings that formerly disguised it. At that time, the work of demolition was going on, and I believe it is still continued, which will add to the improvement of the structure. The exterior of the choir, now just to explain that word choir in its church architectural sense, that is, if you like, the partition between the inside the church where you have, if you like, the main promenade going up to the altar, and it's a sort of partition area that kind of marks that point of the back of the church between the more holy area of the altar itself, um, and it's all often ornamentally decorated, either of wood or stone. But uh, William uses this word quite a lot, choir, so it's in that architectural church sense rather in the a group of people singing sense. The choir is ornamented with curious and ancient bas-reliefs of scripture and history, but its interior is worthy of all admiration. Its splendid carved stools for the archbishop and dignitaries of the church, and its immense brazen eagle in the centre. Above the stools are eight large paintings of scriptural subjects by Halle, Juvenot, Philippe La Champagne, La Fosse, La Bologne, and Antoine Carpal, and on each side of the altar are colossal statues of Louis XIII and 14th in white marble by Couston and Coiseveux. So these are French artists of that time. You can look them up. I did look up Antoine Coiseveux. So, but uh, yeah, if you wanted to look up those names, you'd probably find a record of some of them, but not all of them. Some of them seem to be lost to sort of history a bit. But anyway, 
There are also some fine monuments to the Cardinal de Belay and to a great many Archbishops of Paris, whose names I do not now recollect. But the one that most attracted my attention was the one erected in the memory of Henry Claude Comte de Harcourt, Marshal of France, who died in 1769. But the Cathedral of Notre Dame is one of those edifices in which you may walk for hours and may renew your visits daily and still find sufficient to attract the attention and to admire. Vast and important has been the changes since the first stone of this building was laid. Empires and kingdoms have flourished and decayed. The three great races of the French kings have worshipped within its walls. Then it saw the monarchy swept away, religion abjured, that's uh, renounced in the time of the revolution, and the goddess of reason set up as the object of the people's adoration. Within its walls, Napoleon had the crown placed upon his head and assumed the title of Emperor of France in 1804, Pope Pius VII assisting at the ceremony. But the empire too was swept away, and the elder Bourbons again knelt beneath its roof. But where are they, Louis the Gormandizer? That's uh, another word for glutton or greedy person. Rots in the vaults of St. Denis, and his mad brother, Charles X, sleeps in a strange land. After the revolution of July 1830, Notre Dame was shorn of many honours, but a religious reaction has made great progress lately in France, and the king of the French, to his honour, has been encouraging it. So long as the old royalist archbishop was living, little was done for the church in France, but the present one being dynastic has entered cordially into the king's views. The first great sign of reconciliation was at the christening of the Count de Paris, and all the gorgeous attributes of the papal church were put in requisition on that interesting occasion, followed, alas, so speedily by the funeral ceremonial for the father, the lamented Duke of Orleans. Still, it was a remarkable fact during the funeral of the late Prince Royal, to witness for the first time since 1830 the clergy walking in public procession. Notre Dame was again supreme in the celebration of cathedral rites, St Denis having been neglected to make way for the metropolitan people. But still there was a striking contrast in the two ceremonies, the christening and the funeral, following each other in such rapid succession. In the former, Louis-Philippe saw the consolidation of his dynasty by reconciliation with the church. In the latter, the stricken king could only see the grave of his hopes and the prospect of convulsion from the perils of long regency. But still the old Gothic edifice remains there, untouched by time, and its towers frown on the fleeting mortals whose ambition leads within its massive walls. Nineteen centuries, and there is a Notre-Dame still. What changes may this structure be yet doomed to outlive? But we must bid adieu to this structure of the piety and zeal of the former ages and proceed along the river to the celebrated Jardin des Plantes, a zoological and botanical garden of Paris. I think this is a, a good point to briefly talk about some of the things that William has, has mentioned there about Notre Dame Cathedral. Obviously it is a very magnificent building, if you go online and see the pictures of some of the gargoyles and stained glass windows and things, it's uh, very impressive. I think when I went there, we didn't actually end up going inside because it was so busy trying to get through the queues to go there. So, unlike William, I haven't seen the inside of Notre Dame Cathedral. But roughly, he's getting all his history right there, I think, from, from what I can see. So... I suspect he must be probably using some sort of reference book here, particularly when he's mentioning the dimensions and stuff of 
the building. But uh, it's uh, a fairly, I think, good summary of the history of the building and its creation up until 1840 anyway. And of course, Notre Dame, it's a bit like St Paul's Cathedral in London. You know, these particular buildings become more than just a building. They become sort of a, a spirit of the national feeling amongst the country. And, you know, there's a, there's that picture of St Paul's during the Blitz where it's surrounded by smoke, and um, but the uh, the dome is still in place. And I think it only suffered very minor damage during, during the bombing. And... And obviously Notre Dame in the feeling of the French people is a similar sort of building to St Paul's Cathedral in London. Um, you know, it epitomises the, in some way the spirit of the French people and its long history. And their long history. Its long history and their long history. Of course, as I speak, it's undergoing a massive repair and refurbishment after there was a huge fire there in 2019. And that really tore into the structure, mainly the roof. That was really decimated and it was was described as a forest of oak beams and all the lead work and everything got absolutely obliterated by it. So, of course, it is a big undertaking that Francis and the authorities in France and Paris are doing at the moment in reconstructing the cathedral after the huge destruction that happened. And I think there was some debate about whether they should do it, reconstruct it, as they often do in a a more modern way, or whether they stick strictly to how the building was before the fire. I think they've opted for the latter option, which they usually do. I don't know why we have these debates sometimes. Yes, we'll restore it. How about doing something modern? Yeah. Uh, No, we'll keep it as it was. You get these debates in in Britain as well when something like this happens and they never modernise these great monuments. So I don't know why we even bother having the debate in the first place. But yeah, I think the idea is that hopefully they're going to have it all restored by the opening of the Olympics in the spring of 2024. So that's the, the idea. But obviously when that fire happened, it was a great sort of national trauma for the French people to see Notre Dame in flames so um, there was absolutely no way it wasn't going to be restored after that happened. A nice reference there to the sympathetic approach to mental health in the 1840s from William there um, talking about the, the tower of the church becoming a place of suicide. He says the French don't lock up their buildings because some crazy people want to throw themselves off the top of them. <laughs> Nice approach. I I don't think I'd want him trying to talk someone down from the ledge of a high building. Ah! Uh, <laughs> an inconvenience. Oh dear. Sadly, it's a bit like when when uh, people throw themselves in front of the tube trains in in London these days. People are more annoyed about being late for work than uh, the plight of the poor person that died. Simplifying, really. I'm sure people don't really mean that, but we we're, we can all be guilty of that sort of thing at times. Also, I think he's probably referencing. I'm I'm not going to go into the detail here. I'm I'm just guessing, but obviously during the revolution and Napoleon at times, I suspect the Catholic religion, as it were, was in some way 
outlawed would be too strong, but it had a less prominent role in society. So that's why he's then referring to those various coronations where the bishops of the church are again marching in front of the procession and stuff. So their role in society was re-established after the the rationale of the French Revolution and its attitude towards religion. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to stop here. Also, just to say this bit where William starts talking about the inside of the church and the statues and uh, the various artworks that he sees, this is something that he will do a lot of in the journals as they go on. And I won't definitely be doing every one because he, I mentioned this before, but it goes into a lot of churches and he sort of talks about them in a very similar way, what is there and the artworks and the artists involved. And as these podcasts go on, I will not be including as many of those extracts as I can. I mean, it's sometimes difficult because occasionally he'll put in a nugget of something that makes you laugh or something that's worthy of note. So I just have to go through stuff before to kind of maybe pull out those bits. But yeah, just to say there is quite a lot of this sort of thing then from this point on that goes on throughout the the journals and his visits to churches. And it just becomes quite repetitious and also about some of the palaces and grand buildings that he visits as well and lastly we're spending quite a lot of time in Paris as part of these podcasts basically simply because William seems to spend a lot of time there on his journey down to Italy you know looking at it I think he must be spend at least a week maybe two in Paris so that's why he's writing so much about it but obviously as the journals go down the journey will proceed quicker down to Italy as we carry on reading the text that he's written. So I'm going to stop here. There's some nice bits coming up, I think, in the next bit as well. And it seems a good point to finish. So this is the end of the the fourth episode of a a grand tour with my great-great-grandfather, Grandad. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it up to this point. If you have, please tell your friends and also sign up to subscribe so that you can keep up to date with the latest episodes as they're released. So I look forward to inviting you to join me on the journey in the next episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 